in Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments that are given there. And then in 21, uh, you have the rules that are given regarding, uh, you know, we say slavery, but it's a lot like employment when an individual would work for someone else so that that person would pay off their debt. They could only work for them for six years, and in the seventh year they were to be turned free. A lot of that is uh, detailed there. And then uh, the death penalty is described specifically, and injuries need to be compensated. So you get some very specific outlines in the law there in chapter 21. And then in 22 it talks about theft and how you have to make restitution. And even if you were to have... Uh, intercourse with a woman and steal her virginity, then uh, she is owed and uh, must receive compensation and the man who did it uh, punishment also. The Lord details that. So then when we come to 23, the Lord specifically begins with basically saying there has to be true justice for everyone, that you cannot show favoritism. And he actually takes the impoverished side and says, do not want you to be uh, you know, showing favor to an individual just because they're poor. If they've broken the law, then you need to hold the line on that. You set the precedent, and it becomes that for everyone. Everyone uh, gets leniency, and the Lord uh, needs these rules in place in order uh, to protect them. So he details uh, that in, in a great length. And then when you come to 10, I'm going to read beginning there six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, uh, verse 11. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, glean from those fields. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive groves. Six days you shall do work, do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest that your Ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. And then we went through uh, the explanation of how they didn't do that, and they owed the land essentially 70 years of rest. So God removed them from the land, sent them into captivity, and uh, then um, also talked about the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is our rest in the New Testament sense of things. We're not restrained under some kind of legal obligation to take Saturday off. Uh, Jesus is our rest, and uh, specifically, uh, you know, the day that we choose or the day that we're able to take our Sabbath, we should. We should respect that, but not in the legalistic sense of the Old Testament. So in verse 13, in regard to this, he goes on and says, and all that I have said to you, be circumspect. Now, this goes all the way back to when God began to speak to them in uh, Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter 20. So you need, really need to sort of recap and review and get the full picture there, like I touched on, you know, some of it. But in all of this, you have to be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Uh, to begin with, uh, the definition of circumspect, straight from the dictionary, literally looking on all sides, uh, you know, looking around, the idea of uh, being cautious, uh, prudent, watchful on all sides, it says again, examining carefully 
all the circumstances that may affect a determination or a measure to be adopted. So being circumspect has that idea of examining everything that's around. You know, they, they uh, have a couple of times, and we're going to see it again as the Lord makes his presentation to them about this is your requirement and this is what I promise you in the promise. They, you know, they immediately respond with sure thing, we'll do it. And you turn the page and they're failing miserably. They haven't been circumspect. They did not look things over. You know, the thing we missed very often, we can look around at all the commitments, look at everything that's being asked or required, and we don't examine our own heart. Am I actually capable of this? You know, do I have a walk, a relationship, a spiritual strength in me that I could actually sustain such a thing? You know, it wouldn't have been any offense to God for them to say, oh, we've read it over and we can't do that. We're not capable of keeping this. You know, they say it with, you know, an arrogance and an and ignorance of not knowing they're not capable. Yeah, oh yeah, we can pull that off. Sure, keep the law, no problem, we're on it. And, and miserable failure follows quickly. Being circumspect, sometimes it requires humility, and that's, you know, a more difficult part. We have to admit where we're really at spiritually when we recognize what we're capable or not capable of. He makes that statement, make no mention of the name of other gods. This is the idea of they shouldn't come up uh, in a way my name comes up. You know, it, no mention, okay, you know, God doesn't want them spoken of, doesn't even want people raising questions. The idea is they shouldn't be part of your solution. You, you don't come to a situation of any of these circumstances described throughout this process and think, you know, the foreign gods could really help us in this situation. You know, God is saying, look, in what I'm describing to you and delivering to you, I don't want to hear the foreign gods' names mentioned at all. You know, if you want to speak ill of them to your neighbor about, you know, stay away from the worship of Molech, don't have anything to do with the worship of Bacchus, you know, get away from Diane, nobody's going to be upset with that. What God is saying is, you know, these, these God's names should not be on your lips like my name is on your lips. You know, I don't want to hear that sort of discussion amongst my people. So in verse 14, he shifts gears a little bit and says, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. Uh, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, that's connected to Passover. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I command you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, which is mid-March to mid-April on our calendar. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty, or without a gift is the idea. And the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labor, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, Pentecost, as we might say, at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So these are going to be required celebrations for any male that was capable of traveling. If you had the capacity at all, then you were required to go. Now, like everything, right away, this becomes the sort of thing that because the people aren't worshiping the Lord, they almost immediately start to fall off this practice. You know, just within a few years, 
they're not coming to Jerusalem in the numbers that they should. Everyone should be here. Okay. Now, here's the thing. If we ever look at our you know, time of celebration before the Lord, Sunday services, you know, midweek service, you know, Christmas holiday celebration, anything connected with our worship of Jesus Christ, if we're looking at it like some kind of obligation, then it is going to quickly become burdensome. We're, we're going to view it, you know, and, I, and don't get this wrong, you're really going to let your mind process through that. If you, if you adopt the attitude like, I have to do this, this is required, then the joy is going to just be gone, drained right out of it. it it's, it's much rather the, I get to do this. I have this opportunity to do this. Three times, you now think about this. Guys, you don't have to agree with me wholeheartedly. It might get you in trouble. Three times a year, you get to leave the kids at home. And maybe even travel on your own to just go be close to the Lord. That's pretty smart on the part of God to say, these heads of the household, it would be good if the wives and the family could come, but we need to get the heads of the household together to worship, to be in my presence. If a nation would do that three times a year, all the males take the time off from work, and if they can bring their families, bring their families, gather in together, that everyone would get together and worship the Lord. I can tell you that for me to be able to go to pastor's conferences is never a burden. Never. You know, I, right now, uh, situations have changed, and uh, there is a pastor's conference coming up in New York at the end of September, and I'm not going. And I'm bugged. <laughs> because I get the opportunity to hang out with my brothers in the ministry and see my sisters who serve with them and celebrate and worship the Lord and be fed and grow and come back revitalized and recharged, and I'm going to miss that day, this year. This isn't, oh, darn it, we're at Passover again. I'm going to have to take some time off. And this is the approach that the nation takes in, unfortunately, a lot of Christianity. They, they don't look at opportunities to get away from the work and just life in general and just focus on the Lord as a privilege. In, in that way, I think that we've you know, got our priorities way mixed up. And honestly, it maybe even is revealing what our God really is. You know, the biggest problem for Christians in America is money slash mammon, materialism stuff. That's just the big problem. And we're focused. I'd love to take the time, but time off from work? How am I going to do that? How could I afford to do that? Well, it's through faith and through trust. That's how this is done. And it's the same thing for these people. God knows what he's asking of them. Right at some of the biggest points in their year, they're all farmers, right? So right as you've gotten harvest in, I need you all to come down and worship. You know, that would be the moment where you finally put all the tools away and sort of lay down like, thank goodness, that's over. And instead, travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship. And, you know, bring some of that grain with you. The choice. Portion, one-tenth, I need that. God is setting out for them things that are a profound blessing. And unfortunately, they and we look at them like it's taking away from us. 
when in fact all it's doing is lending to us. You know, uh, if we would go and be with the Lord and learn and grow, how much better are we when we come back to our families? Now, if, like, think about this for a minute. If you're thinking, oh, well, see, we tried that. The spouse went away to that special church gathering and came home, and it was horrible. We just fought. As soon as they got back, it just all blew up. Well, I, I wouldn't say that's a failure. I would say to you that at that point, it's time to recognize how valuable your time away was. Because apparently, your enemy didn't want to see that working within your home and within your relationship. So he worked overtime to destroy whatever was built. That tells you how valuable it is. That tells you how much you need to preserve it and protect it. Think of what Jesus is saying. Right? They're all caught up in, oh, well, we've left homes and families and businesses uh, to come follow you. Jesus makes that statement in the midst of it. Look, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. Whatever it is you need, your family, your job, your circumstances, if you make Christ your priority and you learn and grow, going to be a benefit to everyone around. These three that the Lord sets out, very special. Verse 17, three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So feasts of unleavened bread, feasts of harvest, feasts of ingathering. Details regarding uh, the observation of each of those feasts we're going to go through later when we get into the book of Leviticus. And the details are interesting for us. So I'll save that for when we're in Leviticus and just summarize again that the overarching premise is three times a year I need all of the men in this country to come and worship me together. Imagine, you guys, really, I mean, pastors say like that, things like that, but imagine if this nation literally did that three times a year. If we could get everybody's heart and mind lined up enough to where three times a year all of the men that we're capable of would meet at the designated location to worship Jesus Christ. 310 million Americans. And, you know, if we could just get the men. I watched a documentary. It's terrible, but uh, informative, uh, called Silver or Lead. And it's about the drug crisis in America, and particularly the Mexican drug cartels bringing it across. And uh, you listen to this one DEA agent who goes through the whole thing and uh, explains the history from the startup of the smuggling into Miami all the way through Manuel Noriega and to where we are today. And he's been in the development. And he said, you know, war on drugs, everything that people are doing, wonderful, really appreciate it, been deeply involved in it myself. He said, but nothing's going to change in America until you get the husbands and fathers of families back at the dining table with their families having at least one meal a day and back into church. The men of our culture need the priority of Jesus Christ in our lives to lead our homes, our families, our job, to whatever role we've got. Three times a year, what a magnificent change that would accomplish. It's not a burden. It's not a thing that, oh, we're obligated to do. It's a wonderful opportunity to be together and worship the Lord. 
Now in 23.18, he says, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. Leaven always symbolized sin or corruption. And so the idea, at times they would offer leavened bread, but it was the idea of destroying a thing for the Lord, the sin, the corruption. We need to purge this out. We need to get rid of this. So there were certain sacrifices, but in this case, the Lord is saying, no, when it comes to the burnt offering and the blood of that animal, there shouldn't be any leaven offered there. We don't want even the symbol of sin or corruption associated with this atoning sacrifice. Jesus Christ. There can't be any leaven in that. It needs to be the perfect sacrifice presented for restoration. Then he says, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now I want to clarify something in regard to this. First of which is, when he says the first fruits of your harvest, the first thing he means is, I want you to give me a tenth off the top. But the first fruits isn't even just the first portion that they cut down. In a sinful sense, if we were doing this, well, you know, we'd probably like go down to the swampy side of our property and harvest off, you know, all of this compromised grain and, you know, even add in a little extra. God can have, you know, 10%, maybe a little plus of this, you know, inferior grain. No, no. First fruit meant you're going to examine all of your grain and you're going to find out the portion that is the best. And I want one-tenth of that. God puts the standard forward of, oh, if you're going to give to me, it's going to be off the top, it's going to be the best portion, and it's going to be first. Because if we are hesitant in it, then the whole of what he's saying about God loves a cheerful giver has gone out the window. We're, we're looking through it. We're examining. We're trying, oh, I'll just, yeah, but I'll, you know, I'll give him 10%, but right down to the penny. Is our mind frame resistant? You know, because I would got to tell you, I was overjoyed when God just poured out upon me immeasurable grace. And flooded my life. You know, I, I didn't just say, oh, hey, stop. I just only want this little poor. I wanted it all. He gives to me eternal life. And now, nickels and pennies, I'm going to argue with him about. I'm going to resist and withhold. No, I want you to give the whole thing. Secondly, he makes that statement about you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This has become a very strange practice for the nation of Israel. Um. They will not cook any dairy or any meat together because in their mind, you're cooking, you're, you're doing this, you're cooking the milk, the dairy, with the meat. And so you're cooking the kid, the animal, in the mother's milk. Dairy and beef, or not even beef, dairy and meat go together. You, you can't get a turkey sandwich over there with cheese on it in most places. You know, I'm trying to figure out, like, what milk a turkey has that we can't have cheese. You know what I'm saying? I mean, don't boil the kid in the mother's milk. How, how did this law get this far? There was a period of time where McDonald's 
was being held outside the nation. They wouldn't allow the franchise into the entire nation because they wouldn't reveal what was in their cheese. Is it, has it got dairy in it? If there's any dairy in it, then we can't let you put that with the beef. This is how strict they are about this. And the thought is that when you eat it, you get, you know, you get the beef in and then you put the cheese in and the inside your stomach, your stomach in digesting is, is boiling it. So, so therefore, you're violating this. Okay, uh, let's look at what this really meant. There was a pagan practice amongst the Canaanites as they worshipped the god of fertility, where they wanted their crops to be especially fruitful. So they would kill a young goat and take the milk from that very young kid's mother, and they would boil it in the milk. The idea that this life, which came from this life, this life is now consuming this life. Weird practice. And they would then pour it out in their fields in strategic locations to bring fertility to their crops. It was the worship of pagan gods is what it was. It was these people saying, okay, we, yeah, we're Jewish. We believe all of this. But I don't know if you know, the Canaanites over here, have this God who has magic powers over our crops. So we'll also offer a sacrifice to this pagan God. It's just a practice thing. God is saying, no way. If, if you're going to be my people and, and you're going to celebrate particularly the ingathering and you're going to bring me the first fruits, that's your sacred ritual right there is to trust me with the harvest and give me a portion of it. You're going to now trust pagan gods and go through their practices in order to experience an abundance in your crops as I'm telling you how to give to me so that I can provide an abundance in your crops. What's going to happen? The people are going to be left going, I don't know who caused the abundance. Was it the pagan god or is it the one true living god? It's a robbery of God and that's why he's saying, if you're going to bring me the first fruits of your harvest, you better not be people that are also boiling the kid in the mother's milk. You can't have the pagan practice intermixed. This is how clear things get when you study the scripture. You, know, you don't have to be left. I mean, you're inside Israel. Have a cheeseburger, would you? There's, there's no violation. There's no offense over this. And, and by the way, you can find places that serve cheeseburgers. So you can look around and find them when you're there. So um, this... Practice that the Lord wants, you know, this this consuming of uh, the sacrifice, no leaven in the process. This needs to be done completely. The fat needs to be burned so that God gets His portion in the process. He starts in twenty uh, or twenty by saying, "Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared." You're going to have an unseen guide and protector. That's a, that's a wonderful blessing to know that. That we somehow have the hand of the Lord on our lives. You know, the circumstances and the ways that the Lord has protected us. You know, I've got a list of things I can see the Lord has done to protect us and provide for us as a family, myself as an individual. That makes me wonder how many times things are going on that I don't know anything about. Uh, um, the description I put forward, we've all had it, I've used it many times, where we 
have things interfere with our day and we get frustrated or angry, thinking like I'm being held up. Okay. Now, let me just ask this. You'll see where I'm going. How many of you have been driving down the road and now suddenly there's somebody in your lane coming right at you? And they are usually not looking at the road. They're looking at their cell phone. And then there's that big jerk. What if you'd been a few seconds earlier? Where you were just a little further ahead, where they drifted off and came into your lane? Head-on collision. How many times in a day does God prevent that for you? And we don't even think about it. We're trying to get out of work, and this knucklehead who never wants to do his job is now asking me, and now i got to take time with him, and whine, whine, whine. When all it takes is God's grace to minister to that person and the patience to understand God must want me to be late right now. And when we read Proverbs and it says God has ordained the footsteps of the righteous, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that where my foot lands, God has planned and timed that? If you don't, then what you're saying, if you do not believe that, what you're saying is I don't believe the scripture because that's what the scripture tells us. Now, I've given the example of my friend in Zimbabwe many times growing up. There was a family we were close to, and the husband worked for Trans World Radio. And the place where they were, they had incredibly deadly snakes there. And uh, they hunted them. They would kill them wherever possible. It was a local thing. You just, I mean, in their mind, there's no good reason to leave an ultra-deadly cobra alive. Just finish it off. So they did that whenever possible. Run them over with a truck, hunt them down in the woods, take their head off with a machete, whatever's available. Just hunt these snakes at all times. Uh, the house that he lived in had spikes in all of the stilts pointing downwards so that when the snakes try to crawl up over it, it presses against their scales. They don't like it. They try to find another way. Take the stairs right up every night. Put them on the porch so that you're on this stilted tower and the snakes stay out of your home. Middle of the night, asleep, he and his wife in bed, he hears a noise. And he gets up to go into his daughter's room to just check on her and see if she's okay. Lantern, got to light the kerosene, and you know, get things burning. No power there. So he's just walked in in the dark to check on his daughter. And as he steps to her crib, he steps right on something, and it goes and wraps right up around his leg. And he about has a heart attack thinking, this is where I die. And no strike. He just stands there while the snake is writhing away on the floor and on his leg. And he's got no idea. He's just standing there waiting. Calls to his wife. She brings the lantern in. And he's standing right on that, head's, that snake's head. If he had stepped six inches back on that snake, it would have been able to strike him. Step on its tail, come right around. Snapped right on the back of his head. Just asked her to go get the machete. Reaches down, cuts the snake's head off. And that's the biggest of the snake skins that he has to this day. I would say that's an instance where God ordained exactly where a man's foot was supposed to land. You say, I don't like that because I twisted my ankle. Did God make me twist my ankle? I don't know. What have you learned during the time off? Have you slowed down? Did you lay on your back and point your face at the sky and actually pray? Because <laughs> maybe God did that for a purpose. 
can't be. Look at all the money I lost. Oh, now you've touched on a separate subject that God wants control of. Right? We so often look at these things from a strictly worldly perspective without any view of the scripture in mind. God is truly in control. I, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and bring you into the place which I have promised. That's, that's maybe a verse you want to write down for yourself somewhere. And understand that while it applies to the nation of Israel, it actually applies to all believers. And here's the beautiful thing. This same angel described here, you and I have it. Because it's the angel of the Lord. As best we can tell, what we're talking about right here is an appearance of Jesus Christ. This is a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, caring for the people of Israel. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. Oh, that's Jesus for sure. As far as his name being in him, right? Yeshua, Jesus, you know, real uh, Hebrew slash Greek name, Yeshua is Jehovah's salvation, Yahweh's salvation. You know, Yahweh's name is in Jesus' name. You know, his name is in him. This is almost certainly a, a, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. You can sort that out. I'll give you whatever information I can to help you understand. 22 says, but if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you in to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. I'm going to destroy them. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars, the articles of idolatry and false worship. I want you to attack them. I want you to destroy them and get rid of them. I would encourage you to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you've never done that. We each need the strength of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish the work of the Lord. We're not capable of doing it on our own. There are times, if you have the boldness and the equipment that God has given you, where God will open up circumstances for you, for you to confront people and talk to them. I was in a coffee shop in Bar Harbor a few years ago, and I'm listening to this conversation in front of me, and I should preface this. I had just, a friend had mentioned the Church of Wicca days previously. Witchcraft, you know, what they might call white witches, but it's witchcraft. It's the worship of Satan. And so uh, doing a little research there in that moment, I uh, came across a lengthy article about the white-horned hunter. And it is this deity within uh, the Wiccan church, uh, you know, a church of witchcraft. It's not really a church at all. They've robbed that title and name from Christianity. But okay, that's what they call themselves. Uh, the summary of the great white-horned hunter of the night is that it's Lucifer. Uh, you read through his behavior, his descriptions, even his name, Abaddon, at one point. It's Lucifer. 
he he's just dressed himself up in a bunch of lies and made him look and made himself look as good as he possibly could. But what they're worshiping is Lucifer, especially in the character of the great white horn hunter of the night. So um, I'm standing in line, and the woman in front of me is talking to the gal who's serving. And this barista, the woman who's preparing her coffees, is saying to the woman, no, uh, white witchcraft is good, and we don't worship the devil. And, you know, it's just about the earth. And she's just going on and on about her belief system. And I'm standing behind thinking, I just want to throw up. I can't even handle this right now. And it comes to me. And just before the woman steps away from the counter, I just reach over and touch her. And she pauses long enough to turn around and look at me. And I say to the woman behind the counter, uh, you say that you're not Satanism or witchcraft or worshiping the devil, but I'm just wondering if you could tell me who the great white horn hunter of the night is. And she flipped out, you guys. Like, oh, you born-again Christians always come. I haven't said a word about being a born-again Christian. All they did was ask her, who's the great white horn hunter of the night? And she loses it. Now she's cussing and swearing. And I, and I still got my hand here on the woman. And she rants and raves and finally says, fine, whatever. It is Lucifer. What's the difference? What's the difference? As she walks off, this woman is just bug-eyed at this reaction. And I just turn and say, no, it is devil worship. And she's like, yeah, okay. And it turns out that tear down the sacred pillars. You get an opportunity to insert the truth about Jesus Christ and rip somebody's belief, false belief system down, blow it up. Think, of, think about Gideon, right? Uh, here's this guy hiding from the Midianites, and that's a lot of what's happening in our culture. People, people are just hiding in their place and just trying to get enough bread to eat. That's what they're doing all the time. Gideon has to rise up. And maybe your heart's like Gideon. Oh my goodness, have you seen the world? Have you seen the media? How am I ever going to oppose this? Any of you guys ever been to an outdoor concert? Anybody? Right? 10,000 people, 20,000 people. Have you ever had the opportunity to look at the ground after they've gone? Or like the fair? Right? And they've just ruined the entire fair. Everything's completely compacted. You know, it's just devastated the land they've been on. So it was with the Midianites. They come into the land, there's so many of them attacking Israel that just their marching through the land destroys the land. Well, when you read that in the book of Judges, and it says, and the Midians destroyed the land with their presence. It, it isn't like the Midians were crazy and like ripping up everything and lighting things on fire. It's just with the mass of people moving through, they were destroying everything. And God says to Gideon, okay, 300 guys and you, that's enough. Let's go get them. Massive defeat. I think the church is hiding. There are pillars to be torn down. That's where Gideon started. He ripped down the idolatry that was tearing people's hearts apart. You get an opportunity, be gracious, be kind, you want to be reflective of the character of your Heavenly Father, but don't hesitate to open your mouth and destroy things in the process. 2325, so you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall 
bless your bread and your water, yeah, you know, your staples, your basic needs, and will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. You'll, you'll live to be a ripe old age is sort of the thought of what he's saying there. Now, from this, people have expanded it to mean that you're not going to experience anything bad. You know, If you try to follow these rules, then life is just going to be good to you. Um, that's just not true in, in any level. Now, we can look at Paul and recognize here's a guy, but you could perhaps find flaws. Yeah, right, he's serving the Lord, apostle to the Gentiles, wrote more than one-third of the New Testament, clearly serving the Lord, and yet has this tremendous sickness that he describes as a thorn in the flesh. So something's going wrong because Paul's trying, and then people, oh, well, he was a sinner previously. And it, Well, move away from that discussion for a second. Jesus Christ was perfect. And they beat the stuffing out of him and crucified him. He suffered horribly. We're promised suffering in this life as believers. Promised it. You're never going to find it in that little promise book of prayers. But it's there. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, telling us, you're going to suffer if you're my follower. People are going to hate you, ridicule you, despise you, say and do all kinds of things against you. If we're prepared for that, it's not as hurtful. This is more the idea of you're not going to have to reap what you've sown in sinfulness. You know, it's always amazing to me, you know, to be down at Hancock County Jail doing jail ministries on Wednesday night and to hear somebody complaining about how they've been framed. You know, framed for what? OUI. <laughs> Were you drunk? Yes, but that's not the point, you know, and they want to go on and on. And in the end, you know, if you're patient enough, you finally get to say, you're just reaping what you've sown. This is not like some special persecution. You drank alcohol, got behind the wheel, and you're being punished for that. We often think of our suffering that way. Why do I always have to go through this junk? Do you generate the circumstances? Because if you do, maybe that's the place to start stopping. Put some things away. Stop living this way. If you can hear the blessing of the Lord here telling us, you follow me, I'm going to bless your life. I'm going to fulfill the number of your days. 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Now, so far... These people have not reached the Jordan River, sent the spies over, had them come back, believed the ten rather than the two, and wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. None of that has transpired. But they're going to do that and then come back to the Jordan and then send two spies over, and they're going to be in the house of Rahab, and she's going to tell them, the minute you guys crossed that Red Sea, we were all filled with terror. Because we knew God was with you and that you guys had been given power and authority to defeat us all. What a waste of time. That 40 years of dying. Right? It's an 11-day hike from where they came across the Red Sea 
to where they crossed the Jordan River. And they spent 40 years out there wandering around. That's tragic when a believer does that with their life. Rather than being obedient, trusting God's ability, I'm going to go before you. You know, think about the promise that's laid out here. I'll send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run away. But that's not going to transpire for almost 40 years because we've got to go through the whole dying process. Sad. Sad. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, from before you. You can't really hide in a cave if it's filled with hornets. You're going to come out into the open, and that's what we see the Lord does for them. You're going to even use nature to expose them in the circumstances. I will drive them out from before you. In I, excuse me, I will not drive them out uh, from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Are you ready for the fight that God's called you to? Because sometimes we're not. And God knows that. And so he waits in the process. He, he's actually protecting us in the process. He's letting us grow. He's letting us change. He's letting circumstances soften until we come to that right moment where the people on the other side are ready to receive what the Lord's doing in their hearts and minds, and we in our hearts and minds. God doesn't always say, just let me wipe the board clean and let you be the winner in the process. There's an incremental thing that they have to go through. We've got to drive these people out over time so that we don't have to deal with a land that is now filled with wild beasts and completely desolate. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you, verse 30, until you have increased and you inherit the land. I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. So southern desert all the way to the Euphrates is what he's talking about. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest you they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, the prime example to look at is the inhabitants of Gibeon. Uh, they live a very short distance uh, from where Israel was at the moment. And they hatch a plan, and it's a brilliant one. They take representatives from their country, really shrewd men, and they dress them in just ancient, worn-out, ragged, threadbare clothes, sandals that have been stitched and repaired back together, and, you know, today would probably have duct tape on them or something. You know, their wineskins are old and cracked and patched back together. And their bread is all moldy and, you know, dry and decomposing. So they live right next door. But they've got this grand picture, this 
costume and charade that they've put on. And they come to Joshua and say, wow, we're glad to meet you. We live a long ways off. And when we heard you'd come into town, we didn't want any trouble. So we sent a delegation immediately. And we've traveled all this time to finally get here. To You know, like five minutes ago we left. But, you know, just it's been forever they're, they're lying about how long it's taken. And then they go through a process of, look, these were brand new clothes when I left town. Uh, you know, just all worn out and threadbare and ripping apart. It's been such a long journey. Our bread, literally, we pulled it from the oven hot that day and now look moldy and dry, crust and decomposed. It's terrible. Just the journey's been so long. Could we make an agreement with you guys? We live so far away. You know, we'll never interfere with you. You don't interfere with us. We won't interfere with you. And it specifically says that the elders of Israel and Joshua took account of their appearance, but didn't listen to the Lord. They looked at the circumstances in front of them and went, this makes sense. Joshua chapter 9, verse 15. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them, took oaths. Swear to God, we promise no harm come to you. These guys leave. They just literally short distance right back to their town. Very next town that Joshua arrives at to wipe out. They come out with the written agreement. I'm sorry. Uh, we met with you guys just the other day. And you signed right here. No harm. Everybody remember? You know, they lose their mind. God had said no agreements with anybody. What do we do? Same thing. Go through the great process of, you know, doing everything the Lord says. And then, well, I, you know, I know Paul specifically says, don't be unequally yoked together with believers. And I have even heard that that specifically is telling me not to do business with unbelievers. But this business deal is so clearly from the Lord. I mean, look at the circumstances. Miraculous the way it came together. So I've signed on the dotted line. You're going to pay for that. It isn't even going to be God punishing you. You, you, nice a person as they are, if they're not in our kingdom, they are of the enemy's camp. You are now interwoven with the enemy. And you're going to have to deal with all the repercussions that come from that. You know, you may succeed. With God's grace, you may succeed. I guarantee you're going to walk, guarantee you're going to walk out the, side, the other side saying, I need to help other people avoid that. The struggle I just went through. The commandment that the Lord has laid out right here is something that, again, it's for the blessing of the people. You know, like the Lord saying, take these three occasions a year and come worship me. That isn't God angry saying like a probation officer, I want you here three times. You don't show up, come to your house. We're going to tear apart your closet. We're going to find out what kept you from coming. That's not where God is at at all. God is saying, you won't believe the blessing I got for you. I got a pile of gift here for you. If you just show up, I'm going to just pour out on you like you can't believe. God's whole design is for our benefit. And we, in our sinfulness, 
so often think I'm being restricted. And certainly that's the whisper of our enemy in our ear. God's taking away from you. It's how he stumbled Eve. He comes into the garden and says to Eve, did God say you can't eat of that tree? Yeah, he in fact did. Well, the only reason he said that, it's not because you're going to die. It's because the minute you eat of it, you're going to be like God. Think about that. God's the greatest thing this woman has ever experienced in her life. He shows up at the cool of the day, walks with them in the garden, and talks. A number of years ago now, I had the occasion. Uh, Ray Rempt is a brilliant man. You know, people say that. Ray actually, his IQ is practically immeasurable, like really. And uh, he holds, I, I think it's like 21 separate patents in avionics. Uh, he works, worked, he's retired now. He worked, his entire career was for Delta. He, he, hold, he holds patents jo jointly with Delta. Uh, I say Delta, Boeing. So I, forgive me, it was Boeing. That he, a brilliant guy. He wrote a book called Loving God with Your Mind. I was doing uh, video work at, at the time when he came to speak up here and was asked to do the video work with him, film each one of his sessions. So that puts me right in his environment. I get to spend, I, I was overjoyed. Get to pick his brain, ask questions, just talk to him about science and God and creation and stuff. It was a great opportunity. I was so excited to just hang out with Ray Rem. What if you get to hang out with God? I mean, Ray Rem's a schmuck compared to God. You know what I'm saying? And every day she gets to walk with him. Now the devil's saying, God's holding you back. He's got secrets, this God that you worship. He doesn't tell you things. You're not going to die when you eat of that tree. What's going to happen is you're going to be just like him. The lie. Imagine the betrayal she must have felt. Wait a minute. I could have been like God all along. And God knows that tree is the source. I'm going to eat at that tree. I don't know all of that. I understand I'm adding thought to it other than what's there. But we know for certain that Satan did come and say those things to her. You're being held back. That's always the voice of our enemy. God's keeping you from something or keeping something from you that's good. Anything that God has put the barrier around you guys, it's bad. Right? The confinements work in our, be, in our benefit. Put the sheep inside my protective barrier. Keep the wolves outside. Every, every single line he's drawn is for our benefit. None of it along the way is God trying to take away or keep us from a thing. We'd be wise to come to understand that and know the benefit that is God. His, his great love, his great service to us, he wants he wants to see us succeed. How many of you guys, you know, you've probably heard Jeremiah 29, 11, right? You know, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace, not of evil, that you might have a future and a hope. We've talked about it many times. That's given to the nation of Israel as they're being carried away into captivity. They've lived in sin, and now the Babylonians have finally come, and they're being hauled off for 70 years. You know, some of them are going to die and never, some of them are born in Babylon and die in Babylon and never even get to experience. How can that be a good thing? How? How, God? Right? He's listened to the tabloids. He's watched all the Twitter. He knows what's being said about him. People are bad-mouthing him. 
And he puts the announcement forward through his prophet Jeremiah to tell the people of Israel, no, 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 I know the thoughts I'm thinking towards you, implying no one else does. You're wrong in the thoughts you're thinking about me, and everybody who's spoken to you is wrong. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, and they are thoughts of peace, not of evil, that you might have a future and a hope. Why? Because they've been steeped in idolatry. They just can't get rid of the idols. Over and over and over again, God finally says, okay, let's leave the idols in Israel, and we'll just pull the people out. Well, we've got to separate these idols and these people. Oh, when they come back to the land, idolatry is gone. The nation as a whole is cured of the idolatry. This is what God wanted all along. His restraints, his confinements, were to bless them. I would close by just encouraging us this morning. God's trustworthy. God is good. When the book of James tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights and who there's no shadow of turning... He's not good to one person and bad to the other. He wants to bless us all. But we got to cooperate with the process. If we're resistant to it, then we're going to pay the cost. Cooperate with God. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you very much for your great love. Forgive us, Lord, please for our short-sighted approach. Help us to walk in your vision. Help us to reject our own opinions, that we would experience your blessing and your fulfillment in our lives. Use us as your servants, Lord, that we would minister gently, lovingly, tear down the idols, that people could be free and experience your joy and fulfillment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.